Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Please do take your seats. And it is wonderful to be here tonight to hear stories of God's grace worked out in people's lives, to uh, sing of his amazing grace for us, to pray to him. And also tonight to hear him speak to us of his extraordinary grace. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174, if you've closed your Bibles. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, your word to us tonight contains wonderful, majestic truths about you and about your son, and what he has done for us on the cross. Your word contains uh, difficult and challenging and yet true things about us and our hearts, and yet also wonderful news about what it means to be your people. Father, please fill our hearts and minds afresh tonight of your glory and of your plans for the world, and please, by your spirit tonight, help us Uh, to be the people you have made us to be. 
And we pray this for your glory. Amen. A few years ago now, I spent a week with a few friends and we walked around a brand new, uh, quite swanky housing estate. We wanted to find out what it was like to live on the estate. It's the kind of thing you do when you're training to be a vicar. And um, we had a a few questions to ask. We knocked on people's doors and we, we invited them to take part in a questionnaire. And one of the particular questions we asked everyone on the doorstep was, what's the biggest problem with living on this estate? What's the biggest problem? I guess between our little group, we spoke to several hundred people that week, and we were amazed each night to come back and to catch up after our day of questioning to discover what people said to that very question. And it was amazing, time and again, house after house after house, people gave us the same answer. What do you think they said was the biggest problem on this new estate? It wasn't the lack of parking or the lack of green space or the poor access to shops. Uh, It wasn't even neighbors taking the dustbin out too late on a Sunday evening. I'm lonely. I'm all alone. I don't know anyone. There's no community. That's what people said again and again and again. And it was amazing because as you stood in this new estate, there were hundreds of houses, and I guess there were some 4,000 people who all lived within a 10-minute walk of any one point on the estate. And every evening as the, as the um, dust drew in, car after car would fill, drive after drive. And in each front sitting room, light after light would come on, row after row. And yet in the middle of 4,000 people, I'm lonely. I don't know anyone. There's no community. How is it possible to be in the midst of 4,000 people and to be lonely? Have we ever felt that way? In the office, at school? in the lecture theatre, surrounded by hundreds of people, but completely alone. Why does it happen? It happens because, as humans, we are so very good at building walls and fences. And we do it physically in our gardens. We build brick walls and fences, and we place shrubs and trees to, to box off our little patch and to push people out. This is my space. And other people do it to us as well. But we do it socially as well, don't we? We build little uh, units of friendships and circles that we work in. Uh, We create walls and barriers, cliques, groups around the people that we want to spend time with, the people that we feel comfortable with. And we include people and we shut people out. And people do that to us as well. And based on what people wear, what car they drive, what music they listen to, the color of their skin, their Facebook profile... We box people, we exclude people, or we include people, and they do it to us as well. It's election year, and I guess, what, three or four months, there'll be the general elections. It's that time when politicians start heading out on the streets and TV screens, promising wonderful new policies to transform the world and transform our society. Uh, Think back, if you would, to five years ago. What was the big promise that we were being told about from David Cameron? He talked about, if you remember, broken Britain. And he had this wonderful idea, the big society. 
that would transform our communities, that would bring people together, break down the walls of division and barriers that cut people off and make us a better country. When's the last time you heard him speak about the big society? Five years on, it hasn't worked. How can we fix broken Britain? How can we create real community? How can we bring people together from different backgrounds and different races and different ages? It won't just happen by itself because by our nature we divide and we separate and we isolate. Well, tonight in Ephesians 2, we find the answer. It is a wonderful, glorious answer, and it is the only answer this world will ever find. Uh, Last week, in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, we heard about our our vertical relationship with God. We heard about how uh, before Christ, we were all dead in our transgressions and sins, but in Christ, we are now alive. That that was our vertical relationship. And now this week, uh, Paul begins verse 11, he says, therefore... Uh, Thinking back to that wonderful move from death to life, he now says, therefore, let's think now, not about the vertical, but about the horizontal. Not how we relate to God, but how we relate to people around us. And what we have before us tonight is a particular example of a people divided and cut off and at war with one another. It is perhaps the most extreme example we will ever hear about in the course of history and on our TV screens today. And the logic is this. If God can find a way to bring these people in Ephesians 2 together, then he can do it anywhere, with any barrier, with any boundary. Well, how can God bring enemies together? How can God break down at the barriers. Well, let's look at this particular example before us in Ephesians 2. And um, we, we, we begin back at the beginning. We begin, uh, if you like, apart from Christ. That's where we start. This is the, this is the before picture. Without Christ, this is what uh, these people are like. And we see a people at war. A people who are at war. Uh, look at verse 11 with me. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the hand by the, the in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. In the days before uh, sledging or uh, cyberbullying or, or texting, it seems that the the way that you had to go at your opponents was the good old fashioned way of name calling. Um, in this case, the Jews, the people of God, called everyone else the, the uncircumcised. It's not particularly catching, but it's, it's what they, they went for. Uh, circumcision was, was the physical sign that a person was uh, a member of God's people. It's a bit like if you go to a, a gig or a concert and someone gives you a, a bit of, a, a, put a strap on your wrist to say that you've paid, that you're allowed in, you have access, and you can come and go as you want. You've got that um, badge on your wrist. Well, that was what circumcision was in the first century, although perhaps a more drastic and, dare I say it, painful version of the wristband. You can just imagine the Jews taunting the Gentiles. We're in, you're out. 
when my family used to live in the States, we went on a, a special family holiday. The last one before we moved to the UK, we went to, um, to Disneyland in Florida. And I, I was aged five, and it was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Uh, I couldn't get enough of it. We arrived at seven in the morning, we left at midnight. It was amazing. Except being the youngest in my family, I've got uh, three siblings, uh, there was one point of great pain. You see, the best rides, the fast roller coasters, had a little Disney character cut out in cardboard next to the front of the queue. And to get onto the ride, you had to walk up to the character and check how tall you were. And everyone in my family was tall enough, except for me. Still the case today, I'm afraid. (laughs) But I was excluded. I didn't have what it takes to get in. I was cut off, and I had to stand and watch my siblings tear around this tremendous roller coaster, and I had to watch from the distance. I was far off, excluded. That is just a picture of what was happening with the Gentiles, but in their case, it is far more serious. They were excluded not from some fun ride in Disneyland, but excluded from Christ. Verse 12, again, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Now some here tonight might wonder why this matters. Separate from Christ? So be it. Do you know, I'm happy living my life the way it is at the moment. I'm happy with how it's going. But in Ephesians, to be separate from Christ is to be cut off from the very source of of all blessing. And we saw last week that to be separate from Christ was to be the living dead. Physically alive, breathing, eating, sleeping, walking, but spiritually dead. In our transgressions and sins, that is the wrong things we do, the way that we reject God. And look at the consequences of being separate from Christ. Verse 12 continues. Paul says, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. That is, you were not part of the in crowd. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That is, you were not included in God's great promises in the Bible. And then most desperate of all, you were without hope and without God in the world. This is a bleak picture No matter what group or club you are a part of, no matter how big your bank account or how expensive your holidays or how vivid the contrast on your new widescreen curved TV is, to be separate from Christ was and is to be a person with no ultimate hope. And the Jews knew it. There is a peculiar capacity within the human nature to delight at knowing that you yourself are in but that other people aren't in and to rejoice at it Uh, C.S. Lewis once famously talked about what he called the, the inner ring speaking about our human desires he said this one of the most dominant elements of this human desire is to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. The Jews thought they had made it into the inner ring, God's people. They loved it and they didn't want anyone else coming in. 
They wanted the Gentiles to be kept out at arm's length with the barriers intact. And it wasn't just name calling. In verse 14, Paul talks about the wall of hostility. Or verse 16 again, hostility. Uh, Such was the extreme hatred between the two, uh, the Jew and the Gentile, that one historian writes this. These are shocking words. He says, It was not lawful for a Jew to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. And sadly, a form of this violence persists today. We've seen it on our TV screens over the last 12 months in particular as Jews and Palestinians are caught up in a bloody and violent conflict, a people at war. Now I said this particular example in Ephesians 2, it is an extreme example. I suspect most of us don't encounter anything like this in our daily lives. And yet we still experience a a degree of boundaries and barriers of people pushing us away of that desire to be in the inner ring and knowing we're not. Or seeing people threatening our status and wanting to push them away. We experience it, don't we, all over the place, at school. The complex dynamics that take place in the classroom or in the office, on the sports sports pitch. There is an in-group a group that think they have it made. They don't want others getting in. And those who are in know they're not in and don't know how to get in. And a barrier is formed. That's the before picture. That is what the world is like apart from Jesus. And the world knows no way ultimately to break down these barriers that we erect as humans. But what is it like with Jesus well through Christ we see next a people at peace verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ those who are far away he's talking about Gentiles I suspect that's many of us here tonight, non-Jews. Gentiles have been brought near. That is near to God and near to his people. How can this be? Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now look, every inner ring, every group has its entrance criteria, does it not? It's been a long time since I was at school, but uh, when I was at school, there was uh, the sporty crowd over there. And to get into the sporty crowd, well, you had to be sporty. Uh, Over here, you had the music crowd. And to get into the music crowd, well, you had to be musical. Uh, Then over here, you had the cool crowd. And to get into the cool crowd, well, actually, I have no idea. I'm still trying to work out what that means. (laughs) But you get the point. So what was the entrance criteria for the Jews? It was the law. It was circumcision. It was ticking every box and dotting every I of the law. The Jews thought that they were keeping it. And so were in. And they thought the Gentiles couldn't and wouldn't keep it. And so they were out. But what does Jesus do? Verse 15. 
Jesus knocks the wall down by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Do you see how it goes? The Jews would say, you you, you cannot come in to our group because you don't keep God's laws. Look, you're not even circumcised. But Jesus says, come, because the law has been taken away. The requirements of the law no longer bind. Rather, it is my death on the cross which gives you entrance into my people. And this is massive. This is huge. Imagine, if you would, this uh, fictional scene at the end of time when uh, we all stand before the pearly gates leading up to heaven where God is. And as we walk up to the gates, we find the Apostle Peter standing at the gates and he says to you, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in to be with the Father, uh, with his people, uh, in the new creation, a place of happiness and joy forever? Why should I let you in? It's a question we all have to ponder tonight, whether we are regular at church or whether we've been here for the first time. Why should we be let in? Well, many people would start by saying this. I should be let in because I I did this, or uh, I was like that, or I, I didn't do that. That's what the Jews were thinking. Oh, look, uh, we're, we're circumcised. Oh, look, we're the kind of people who keep the law. But it's the wrong answer. It's not enough. Because according to Ephesians chapter 2, no one can keep the law. No one has done that perfectly. Remember 2 verse 1, Paul says that uh, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the shock for the Jew is that that verse is true of them as well, not just the Gentile. Their attempt to keep the law was not a perfect attempt. They too were spiritually dead. They were unable to meet God's perfect standards. And so even the Jews, with all their efforts and laws, well, actually, if it's based on the law, well, they're not in either. No one's in, in fact, that way. And the same is true for us tonight. No amount of giving to charity, no amount of being a good friend or a team player, no amount of excellent exam results or an excellent career or an impressive moral record can ever get us to God. There is only one right answer at the pearly gates. It's there in verse 13, right at the end. We have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Or again, verse 16. In this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Only Jesus' death on the cross can bring us to God or bring anyone to God. The cross is where Jesus took upon himself all the wrongdoings that we have accrued through all the years in our lives. The Bible calls them sins and trespasses. All the wrong thoughts and motives and agendas and plans, all the harsh words spoken out of turn, the anger, the impatience. Uh, We talked about tonight about being friends, all the ways in which we've wronged our friends, been bad friends. All those things 
the Lord Jesus takes upon himself on the cross. He dies the death we deserve. And in doing so, he frees us from the penalty of our uh, sin. He frees us from God's uh, anger and he brings us forgiveness. And look at the results. Verse 18. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We both, Jew and Gentile, the uncircumcised, the circumcised, those who have tried to keep the law, those who didn't even know about the law, we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. So through Jesus, only through Jesus, we can all have peace with God. And here is the great leveler for our society, for our culture, for every person from every background. Imagine, if you would, that our relationship with God is, is like a long jump competition. You know, if you jump far enough, then you will win the prize of being in a good relationship with God, of being able to call him Father. And you imagine the, the little Gentile running up and jumping and managing, what, a meter down the track. And then the Jew comes along and jumps an impressive, what, eight meters. And you think, well, who's nearer to God? The Gentile or the Jew? Well, the Gentile, one meter, the Jew, eight meters. It's clear. The Jew has, is closer to God. They are near. But they're not near if you realize that the distance that you have to jump is the distance across the English Channel. What's the difference between one meter and eight meter if you have to travel, what, 22 miles? Neither makes it. You see, the cross is the great leveler for all of humanity. Looking across this room here tonight, there is no one who can jump far enough, be good enough, do enough for God to win his approval, to make it into his people on our own. No one. We're all on the same level playing field. But in and through the death of Jesus, anyone here tonight, anyone can be welcomed in because of the cross. Do you see the cross is the great leveler It is the only leveler the world has like this. And this means we can have peace with one another. Look at what Paul says again, verse 15. His purpose, partway down, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. You see, Once we realize how our peace with God vertically can take place, only through the cross, then we realize that horizontally with other people, well, we're all in the same playing field. There's no no such thing as as a good person or a bad person. No such thing as a good Christian or a bad Christian. Only people who are dead in their sins or alive in Christ. Which means there's no need to compare or to worry about our performance Or to wonder if we're good enough compared to other people. When we realize that our place in God's people is a free gift from God and not a competition. We're not competing with other people to get in. It's not about having an inner ring and an outer ring. It's not about us defending our patch within God's people. It's all about God's free grace. And so we don't need to prove ourselves or to define ourselves. Or to demonstrate how good we are or how impressive we are to anyone. We have it all freely in Jesus. And this is the key to peace with other people. In Christ, 
What we have in common is far greater than what divides. So what would it look like as we move to a finish? What would it look like for us to live together with other people as God is calling us to here tonight? What would it look like to be a people of peace and not of war? Well, I think Paul answers that question in our final few verses tonight. Here's our final point. A people with a new identity. Uh, We spend so much time and energy uh, thinking about and worrying about whether we are in or out of the circle in life. We compare, we contrast, we lose, we win, and it's exhausting. But look at what Paul says in verse 19. Consequently, that is, because of the death of Christ, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. In other words, in Christ, we are in. Paul says we are fellow citizens with God's people. Which means that what defines us first and foremost is not being English or Scottish or Welsh or Irish or from any other country. No, what defines us first and foremost is that we are a citizen with God's people. Well, then in verse 20, Paul talks about us being a building that is growing and being extended and and becoming more glorious as God works in it and through it. And then also, amazingly, we are a temple a place where God dwells by his spirit. Which means that we are part of the biggest group, the biggest event, the biggest circle, if you like, that the world has ever known or ever will know. I'm sure many of you know that in two weeks' time, the Six Nations begin. Very excited. Uh, It's a, a time of great rivalry. I'm sure you'll be all very kind to me. I'm from... Scotland, you'll be very kind to me, you English people, I'm sure. Um, it's a time when, uh, for about six or eight weeks, we watch huge men uh, smash each other and take huge lumps out of each other and tackle and run at each other. Uh, and, and there is a real feeling behind it, isn't there? You know, as England plays Scotland, it's a, it's a big event. And there is real rivalry taking place in the pitch. If you like, they are, in that moment, enemies fighting one another. But every once in a while, every couple of years, something dramatic happens to these men who fight each other. Uh, in his book, um, Graham Bynan uh, writes about this uh, in God's New Community. We've been plugging this book as our book of the term. And in this book, um, Graham Bynan points out that um, every two or three years, these, these very men who used to fight one another join the same team. They play for the British and Irish Lions. They take off their local shirts and they put on the red shirts of the UK, and they join a new team for just a season. They, they wear different colors, and because they wear different colors, they unite. Our enemies become friends. They play together against a new enemy. And look, it's not a perfect picture, but there's something of that when it comes, something of that when it comes to God's people. You know, we used to wear different shirts and fight different corners and have different agendas. But when God calls us through the cross into his people... We put on a a new shirt. We have a new color attached to our chest. We are new people and we fight for a new team. And where we used to have nothing in common, now we have something wonderful in common. We are part of the same family now. And whatever thing you can think of that used to divide you, now no longer divides. For we are now one. We have a new identity in Christ. 
Now, what would it mean in practice for us to live out this amazing calling of being God's people, of being his, his building, his temple? What would it look like in practice? I loved hearing Tom tonight just talking about how when he came back to church, he was amazed at looking at how Christians lived. Did you hear that from him tonight? He was struck at how they loved one another and cared for one another. He was overwhelmed by the quality of their relationships, different from the world around him. So what should it look like for us as God's people to be different from the world around us? Well, it would mean that we break down every dividing barrier and every wall that humanity erects. Well, here's a few ideas of what this might look like. One barrier in the world around us is age. It is. How often do you find in the world around us people of different ages coming together? In what context? Not just in a, in a formal moment, but, but informally, um, when they don't have to be there. You see, so often the world around us creates a barrier around age. People think, well, what do I have in common with someone from a different generation? What would I talk about? What hobbies and interests do we have together? It would be awkward or weird to to kind of spend time together across the age barriers. But what about us Christians, the people of God? What defines us is not our hobbies, our age, our backgrounds, what we do, what we're interested in. What we have in common is that we all share a deadly past before Christ. We all share a gracious rescue in Christ. And we are now the new people of Christ. And you can't get bigger than that when you're looking for common ground. I don't know, tonight, after we finish our time together, maybe over coffee, look around the room, thinking, who could I talk to who's someone I never talked to before? And you think, well, I'm not sure. What, what can I say to them? What do we have in common? Well, according to Ephesians 2, we have... A tremendous amount in common. We are part of the same people with the same saviour. And so the church should be a place where the ages mix easily, lovingly, naturally. Uh, Mix after our service tonight. Mix in our small groups. Mix in the way we serve together. Uh, Mix uh, in our social times. It looks weird from the world's eyes. But the people of God have something which transcends those barriers. Well, look, age is just one example. There are many other dividing walls. There's education and class. There's hobbies and interests. Are we an extrovert or an introvert? Are we party people or quiet people? Maybe we think that our theology is very thin. Others have this tremendous brain for theology. But all these barriers mean nothing in Christ, or they should. We are all equal. What unites us is far greater than that which divides us. It is possible to be surrounded by 4,000 people and to feel utterly alone. It happens. By nature, we build walls and fences and divisions. We keep people out and people keep us out. But in the church, God's new community, we should be a place with no barriers, with no walls. Everyone is welcome because of Christ. No one should be alone. Let's pray. Father, these words before us tonight are wonderful words. They are world-changing words. Father, please, would you help us 
to be the people that you have already made us to be. May we grasp your grace. May we delight in the peace that we have with you and others. And may we be a people who unite and who share and who love. A people the world sees and wonders because of the grace of Jesus. Amen.